Open your Bibles, if you would, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. We're continuing our study of Matthew's account of the life and ministry of our Lord. Um, Last week we looked at Jesus' entry into the temple and how he drove out the people that were doing business there and we noted his three objections. He had three objections to what was going on. There was the abuse of the common people. They were being ripped off. Um, the very existence of business in the temple was an issue. That shouldn't have been going on. The, te- the business was important, but it needed to be, you know, take it outside, buddy. Um, and then the misplaced confidence, most importantly, the misplaced confidence that having the temple gave them. They had gotten into a pattern of thinking that they could go out and do all manner of ungodliness and then come running back to the temple and, you know, make their sacrifice and be good. And that, that's not how it works. And so he also spoke to that. Well, in our text this morning, we find Jesus going back into the temple where he will go to teach the people. Uh, the gospel accounts make that clear that during the Passion Week, it was his habit to go into the temple early in the day and in the outer courts teach the people. And when he does that, he will encounter the chief priests and the elders. So let's pick up the text at verse 23. This is again Matthew chapter 21. And when he, that is Jesus, had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord. It is life, it is nourishment, it is instruction. And our prayer this morning is that we would hear from you that we might be changed, Lord. Father, you bring truth, we bring the need. We bring the need to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be changed. We ask that you would do that by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The text this morning is a really extraordinary encounter. It's a encounter that raises, at least for me, uh, some real questions. Jesus had the preceding evening come into the temple, at least into the outer courts, and, and frankly made a mess of things. I mean, he's overturning tables and driving out the money changers. There were stalls of animals. Well, when he drove out the people selling the animals, I assume the animals followed him out, you know. So it had to be utter chaos in the outer courts. Uh, just shut the thing down, at least the business side of it. And you know, we talked about that in our life group this last Wednesday. Um, we, we tried to come up with, in our, in our discussion, a parallel kind of event in our culture, and we couldn't come up with anything. Because nothing in our culture is as, as comprehensive as what you find in the temple. Even the, the craziness that happened in Washington, D.C. back in January on the 6th, that was only political. That was, you know, all that was focused on the political side of our lives and only at the federal level. You know, you got all the state capitals, they weren't involved with that, plus all the other aspects of our culture that were not directly affected. That was was very significant. I'm not making light of it, but it was focused. This is completely comprehensive because the temple, the temple represented everything it was to to be 
Israel, everything it was to be a, a Jew. The whole cultural package is, is wrapped up there. It was the center of their identity and their culture, and that's what Jesus was, was, was touching when he did this. And now he returns the next morning to the temple, and the folks in charge, as you might expect, are waiting for him. Now, I don't know about you, but I recreate this in my mind. I am thinking, how are the people in charge going to be waiting for him? If it's me, I'm waiting there with a bunch of temple guards saying, you don't come in here again. Right? We've seen what you do, and you're not doing it again. That's the kind of reception I would anticipate. But, yeah, but you're, this is not what happens, right? He returns, and the reception he gets is almost cryptic. Right? Who gave you this authority to do what you're doing, and where does it come from? Does it come from men or from heaven? How do we understand that question? Well, to do that, I think we first want to ask exactly who are these people that Jesus met? Who are they? These chief priests and elders. And then what is their question actually asking? And then finally, how, the way Jesus responds, what, what does he mean? And I think what we're going to find in that is something that speaks very um, powerfully to us in our day-to-day, in our -day, right? Let's talk first about these people who come to Jesus, the chief priests and the elders. Of course, the law, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know the law speaks extensively about the chief priests. It goes all the way back to Leviticus 21, starts with Aaron. It talks about how the, how the high priest should be chosen, how he should be prepared, how he should conduct himself, how he should dress, everything about him. Um, the high priest was, for all intents and purposes, the highest authority in the nation, at least until we get to Saul, where a king comes up, and then you have kind of a king in competition. Um, in the period of judges, the judges were powerful, the prophets were powerful, but the high priest is always, if not the most powerful central authority figure. He's one of them. And um, the most important thing the high priest did was on, on the Day of Atonement, it was the high priest that would go into the Holy of Holies and make, make sacrifice. He would, he would offer up incense to make atonement for the whole nation. So the collective sin of the nation, the forgiveness for that was in this guy's hands. That's an awful lot of power. So this was an extremely, extremely powerful uh, figure. He was also in charge of the day-to-day uh, -day oversight of the temple. And I don't know if you think about it or not, but the temple, like any other big institution, had a lot of stuff going on. You got money being collected, you got animals being sacrificed, you got music, you got people dancing and worshiping, you got, all, you got the barbershop, we talked about that. A lot of things were going on. Well, he has oversight over all of that, and it has to go smoothly. Uh, and then the text refers to high priest plural. Now, that was a reference to two things. One was, at this particular space and time, the high priesthood was kind of shared. You had Annas, and then you had Caiaphas, father-in-law, son-in-law, and they had kind of a, a, a sharing relationship worked out with the priesthood. And then, of course, you have all the other people in charge of all the other stuff, like, you know, again, the animals and the treasury and the music, and they even had a guy in charge of security because he had the temple guard. Those were all priests, right? So these collectively are high priests, the term so you got this big group of people in authority. They ran the temple, and to a varying degree, they ran the country. Of course, the high priest also ran the Sanhedrin, which was the official governing body of the nation. Tremendous amount of authority in these people. And whenever you have that kind of authority, of course, you have the opportunity for abuse. And there certainly was a long record of that as well. It was nothing new. It's nothing new now. Uh, in the case of, of Israel, it went all the way back to, for example, uh, Samuel. 
Samuel the judge, over a thousand years before Jesus. And Samuel was called to, to ministry uh, during the high priesthood of Eli. And if you know anything about Eli, you know he wasn't necessarily the best, he wasn't necessarily the worst, but his sons were the worst. I mean, everything that you could think about in terms of abuse of power, these guys did it. In fact, Scripture refers to them as the sons of Belial. Now, that's not a proper name. That just means worthless. They were the sons of worthlessness. Now, in a lot of the text, it's capitalized because they were the personification of worthlessness. They were just, you know, they were worthless, right? And so Samuel's called as a reaction to that. So there were some really rotten high priests. There were some really good ones, too. Like any other institution, it went back and forth. That changed, though, in 175 B.C. And what we're trying to do is set the stage for the interaction that Jesus is having. In 175 B.C., uh, Israel was controlled by the Seleucid Empire. And a man came to power over the Seleucid Empire by the name of Antiochus IV, who history calls Epiphanes, which just means the appearance of God. He didn't have like an ego problem or anything, right? Um, yeah, and he hated the Jews. He loathed the Jews, and he took every opportunity he could just to mess with them. And he discovered that the best way to control the Jews was to control the high priesthood. So why not appoint whoever he wanted, rather than rely on the biblical method. And so he decided, I'm just going to appoint whoever I want. And what that means is, I can auction the job off. And so it became a way, not only of controlling the Jewish people, but also of accruing revenue to whoever was in charge. And this guy sets the pattern for that, and that continues unabated until Jesus' time. The Romans were more than happy to accept that system, because it you know, gave them what they wanted. And so what happened over that period of time, the high priesthood increasingly becomes a strictly political office. They're political appointees. They're serving a political purpose. This is going to be a drastically different group than Jesus was encountering when he was up north. Up north, he traditionally encountered Pharisees, right? And the Pharisees, they really had nothing to do with the temple. In fact, they didn't even care about the temple. What they cared about was the law. And the only reason the temple had any significance is when the law specifically addressed the temple. Day to day, Pharisees couldn't care less. The law is what they were all about. And they are not like professional religious type people. They had other jobs. Like Paul was a tent maker. He had been a Pharisee, right? And to be a Pharisee was a description of what you believed more than anything else. They were very very fastidious and sincere in following the law. Now, they were sincerely wrong on a lot of points, but at least they were sincere. That You didn't see the blatant carnality and secularism that you saw in the high priesthood. So the people were very more inclined to support the Pharisees. People liked the Pharisees. They hated the priests because of their hypocrisy and the fact that they weren't even representing the system they were supposed to be representing. And so this is going to be a very different reaction that Jesus is going to have with these guys. And so the chief priest and the elders, it says the elders came, they were just the, the rank and file members of this body called the Sanhedrin. So you have this collective body of professional religious types who really are just, you know, political appointees. They're the ones that come to Jesus. And they ask him this question. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? It's a fascinating question. Um, again, my first thought was, why didn't they just throw him out? Um, that would have made sense. They don't do that. Uh, but neither do they ask him exactly what is the problem that's got you so upset. They don't talk about 
the morality of what he did or any kind of moral or spiritual justification for what he did. What they want to know is, who's behind you? See, the word authority always speaks of an ability or a capacity that is outside of oneself. The word actually means that. It means outside of oneself. As opposed to power, for example. Um, if I were 6'5", weighed 250 with 2% body fat, I would have a lot of power. None of that is true. Okay, but even in my present appearance, if I like worked for the FBI, I would have a lot of authority. It has nothing to do with what I look like, what kind of shape I'm in. That would be, that's power. Authority is when it comes from somebody else. So when they ask Jesus, by what authority do you do this? They're literally asking him, who's behind you? Who's backing you up? Where does this come from? Because nobody in his right mind would do what you're doing unless either one had a death wish or two had somebody powerful backing him up. Now, why is that the question they ask? Well, again, consider who these people are. Consider their perspective. We talked about this a little bit last week, how these people, these high priests and elders, how they see the world. We got a really good example of this, and I just touched on it last week, from an incident in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. It's only a few weeks before these events we're talking about here in Matthew. Right? Lazarus was from Bethany. Where is Bethany? It's right over there. It's with a stone's throw from Jerusalem. So you got this preacher this radical rabbi from the north, and he's got a bunch of people following him, and now he's raised somebody from the dead. And the crowds are getting huge. And the, and the high priests and all those guys are getting nervous because all this is going on. And in John chapter 11, we get a picture of what was being said in the Sanhedrin. And the question is worded this way. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What was their interest? What was their concern? Our place, our status. I got these nice priestly duds I get to wear every day. I got a nice home. I got everything set because I'm part of the priesthood, right? And our nation. We're going to lose our country if we let this guy go on like this. That was their concern. And then we really get some insight when Caiaphas responds to these people. Again, this is all conversation that was going on inside the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas says this, you know nothing at all. That's a really good way to insult the Sanhedrin. Tell me I don't know anything. He says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation should not perish. I'm going to read that verse again, a quote from, from Caiaphas. Ask yourself, what's the most important word? You know nothing at all, for you do not understand that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Underline the word expedient. His priority is maintain the status quo, our place in our nation, and what he really wants to know is what will expedite that? What is the expedient response? Not the right response. What's the expedient response? You see, the reason for their question to Jesus isn't that they recognize his inherent rightness or they really have any concern at all for the morality. They're just not concerned with that. They question his authority and his right because that's how they function. They understand. They got their job through a political appointment, and they can lose it just as easily. And they want to know who's backing this guy up. Is he powerful enough? Whoever's backing this crazy rabbi up, is, he, is that person powerful enough to take our place in our nation? 
They see everything through a lens of expediency. This is why they ask about authority. The nature of the question is rooted in the fact they're political appointees, they'd come to power through corruption, and they lived with the understanding that that same power could take everything away from them. No matter how right or wrong what Jesus did, how right or wrong it looked to others, their first question was, who told you you could do that? Kind of provocation that would have allowed Rome to step in, and that's what Caiaphas and the others are concerned about. Let's look at Jesus' response, verse 24. Jesus answered and said to them, I'll ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I'll also tell you by what authority I do this. Jesus has a question too. And here's the important thing to remember, he gets his answer first. That's really important. How many of us have said, or have heard people say, boy, I can't wait till I stand before God. I'm going to have some questions for him. Yeah, well, he's going to have some questions for you too. And guess who gets his answer first? That's what Job found out. Job had spent how many chapters just railing against God? And then finally God answers with his question. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without wisdom? Job covers his mouth, points at the other guy. We all have questions. God gets his answers first. That's kind of an aside. Keep that in mind. Here's Jesus' question, verse 25. And I, I think, as I, I like to recreate the setting in my mind, and I think what Jesus is essentially saying here is, you know, you guys brought up authority. I'm glad you did that, because I've got a question about authority. I've been meaning to ask you. John's baptism, where was the authority in that? You had to be concerned about it. What did you think about that? The baptism of John, from what source did it come? From heaven or from men? And their response is so predictable. It says they began reasoning. Again, get the visual. Jesus has been teaching the crowd. The Pharisees walk up. Not the Pharisees, I'm sorry. The, the chief priests and the elders, they walk up. Jesus turns to face them. They have this exchange. Jesus says, now about John the Baptist... Where did that authority come from? And they immediately move into their huddle, right? And they're all, they're, okay, how are we going to handle this one? The guy asked us about John's authority. What are we going to do? Because if we say it came from heaven, he's going to ask us, why didn't you listen to him? If we say from men, then we've got that, you know, the hairy unwashed mob over there that we're terrified of. They're going to react. So what do we say? And they debate it, and they're reasoning, and then finally one of them goes, I got an idea. I have an answer for you. We don't know. You know, we don't know. At which point, Jesus says to them, well, then neither will I tell you. Neither will I tell you. Most important word in that sentence is neither. It is the word ude. This is not like a bunch of little kids, like, you didn't tell me, so I won't tell you. This is not that. The word neither, ude, means it's a negative conjunctive, and there's some more words that describe the grammar. It's when you are contrasting two things that are equal in some sense. In order to use this word, the two things being talked about have to have some relationship of equivalence. What he is saying is, fine, you don't want to talk about authority? We're not going to talk about authority then. You've made the determination, chief priests and elders, that you don't want to talk about authority. You weren't interested in John's authority? I guess you're not interested in mine. And the conversation comes to an end. He's simply saying, I am answering you 
in kind. John the Baptist was a problem that Herod made go away for you guys, and you were more than happy with that. If you're not interested in his authority, you're not interested in mine. It is a sobering and tragic. This moment is so tragic. They are standing in the temple, a building whose sole purpose was to turn people's thoughts towards God. Everything about the temple said, look to Yahweh. They have in their immediate environs, you know, the, the altars where sacrifices are being made, the lampstand. There are people worshiping, worshiping on their 24-7. Incense is being burned. It was burned 24-7. Sacrifices are being made. People are dancing. There was dancing in the temple in worship. Right behind them is, is the holy place, and in that, the holy of holies, with the Ark of the Covenant, the light of the presence, the table, all of that, everything surrounding them says one thing, look to Yahweh, and his son is standing in front of them. You can't see it. You can't see it, because they're not looking for it. They're not looking for him. What are they worried about? Keeping their jobs. And they are so worried about maintaining the status quo of their little world and doing whatever is expedient to keep that, they cannot see. The one thing the nation has been looking for, the one person the nation's been looking for for more than a thousand years, this is their moment. This is the moment they've waited for. All they have to say is, we are so glad to see you. Come on in. But they, they can't because they're not looking for it. Their motivation is entirely different. They're calculating, looking for that expedient way just to stay the course. It is such a foolhardy thing to do. And it's foolhardy for us, too. Obviously, we know it's foolhardy for the sinner when salvation is standing in front of you to say no to it. That's lunacy. But how about those of us who have embraced salvation? Yes, we have trusted in the blood of Christ and we're saved. But the reality of it is there's still so much of the world in me. There's still so much fear and weakness and sin and self and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm saved, but there's still so much in me that I would really rather not be there. And he comes to me day by day. He comes by his spirit. The things I encounter in the world, circumstances, things I see that, oh, wow, the Holy Spirit takes those things and speaks to my heart, my mind. When I'm in his word, I'm seeing things that are going, that's something I need to deal with. When I come into the fellowship of his body, the church, and I'm not just talking about Sunday morning, when I meet brothers and sisters through the week and just the conversations we have and I go, oh, yeah. That's something I need to work on. When I spend time in prayer, all of that, all of that is God by his say, spirit saying to me, John, let's work on that. Let's fix that. And it is so easy for me to just change a gear and start calculating how I can simply continue to get by with where I am. Because frankly, I'm comfortable enough right here. And that is every bit as tragic as what these high priests and elders are doing. The answer to the problem is right in front of them. They're just not looking for it. So you got the high priests and the elders, and they're, they're blind. you got the mob sitting in the background. They know exactly what they're looking for, and they're going to get it. They're going to get Jesus. 
I have to decide what group I want to belong to. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. Father, as we're here this morning, we look at these events, Father, and we, we see them in history. And we see Jesus on a day in the temple, you know, dealing with these high priests and people that really they had no idea what, what the whole thing was about. They were totally caught up in their titles and their robes and all this stuff. So when the Messiah stood right in front of him, they missed him. Lord, um, we have to, I mean, I have to confess, Father, that we stand before, I stand before you this morning, Lord, and I rejoice that the blood that was shed on my behalf, the cleansing that was made for me, and the indwelling of your spirit, Father, within, which is the assurance of the new life that we have. But at the same time, Father, if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, there's still much, so much there, Lord, that you want to deal with, you want to work out, Lord. But we can, and I do, Father, get settled in the status quo and start finding the ways to push aside that still soft voice and expedite what I'm doing now. Lord, we don't want to do that. Father, our prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would stop us. You'd call us up short when we do that. When you're speaking to our heart through your word, by your spirit, through your people, Father, through the songs we sing, Lord, when you're speaking to our heart and we find ourselves allowing that little justification to come in or that rationalization to come in, Father, call us up short. Father, we invite you by your spirit, call us up short, Lord, and then give us the strength, the integrity, the courage, the clarity of thought to embrace the changes you want to make in our hearts and lives. Father, we know it's the best thing we can do. Help us, we pray, to that end in Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.